Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. In the month of July, I will have Agent Eric Smith of PS Literary, Anika Mroth Risi, former executive editor who has worked at Catherine Teagan Books, Simon Pulse, and Scholastic, as my guests for exclusive episodes available only through the Writer Writer Pants on Fire Patreon. Visit www.patreon, that's P A T R E O N, dot com forward slash Mindy McGinnis to learn more or check out the link in the episode credits. Authors, if you'd like to have your book featured in an ad spot here on the podcast, shoot me an email. 15 and 30 second spots are available starting at $3. You provide the text, I'll create the ad. Email me, mindy at mindymcginnis.com to learn more. Today's guest is Lauren Spieler, debut author of Your Destination is on the Left, which releases June 26th. Lauren joined me today to talk about the querying process and how finding your people will keep you sane in the writing world. A teen fashion student pursues her dream of becoming the next great designer before and after a major weight loss she falsely believes will solve all her problems. Fat Girl on a Plane by Kelly DeVos is an unforgettable novel about pursuing your dreams and loving yourself. My listeners love to hear successful querying stories because many of them are still in the querying trenches. So tell us about how you landed your agent and what your query process was like. I'm represented by Jim McCarthy. I had queried a couple books before he and I started working together. I wrote a really heinous urban fantasy that will never see the light of day. Queried a second book that was sort of in that nebulous middle grade slash YA space. While I was querying each book, I was working on the next one. And so my third book is the one that I ended up signing with Jim for. And I actually had gone through Pitch Wars as a mentee with that book. He wasn't actually a Pitch Wars agent, but I had queried him when it was over. And he and I started working together shortly after I moved to New York to work in the industry myself. So I knew as soon as we got on the phone that he was going to be the right fit for me. And I hadn't really set out with a dream agent in mind. I had dream qualities. I knew I wanted someone who was a good communicator and I wanted someone that loved my book and someone that had a clear editorial vision for it and where it would sort of work. But I didn't have, you know, one person or one personality type in mind. But then when I got on the phone with Jim, I just knew that it was the right fit. Yes. A lot of people talk about that agent hunt. And I know myself, because I was querying for 10 years, that at some yeah. points I was just like, anybody, anybody, I don't care, any agent. And that's not a healthy mindset because it's a professional relationship, but it is also kind of like dating. You have totally. to have someone that works with you and fits your personality and your work style and your voice and your writing. And there's so yeah. many elements at work. Yeah, I agree. It's very much a relationship. And I think it's not just anybody, because we talk a lot, I think, in the writing circles about the dream agent. And I don't think there's any one perfect agent necessarily, but I also think it is definitely important to know what it is you want out of the relationship. Mm -hmm. So you kind of want to find that you want to be flexible and open-minded because you never know who the perfect fit's going to be. But you also want to keep in mind that 
everybody has priorities and knowing yours will only make finding the right agent easier. Agreed. I did not necessarily have a dream agent in mind. I definitely had names that I knew and were familiar with. Um, Jennifer Laughlin, especially, she was one that I followed on Twitter and was always super aware of her and what she was doing and who her clients were. Interestingly enough, this is a story I haven't shared on the podcast before. I actually got a rejection from Jennifer Laughlin that is the reason why I kept writing. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's the truth. Much like you, I wrote an urban fantasy that... <laughs> Everybody's gateway drug. <laughs> never see the light of day. Yes, exactly. I think it was the fourth novel I'd ever written. It was the first one that is anything near publishable. But my problem, of course, was that the genre was dying. Mm-hmm. And I was querying it at the wrong time. But I was going to die on that hill. Like, I wanted that book to get published. I still do. But so I was really just just throwing it out there. And I queried Jennifer Loughran and she asked for the full and I gave it to her. And it was two or three months later, like she took her time with it and she emailed me back and she wrote me a very long rejection. And she was so kind and said, you are a good writer and you are going to make it. And if you had queried me with this five years ago, I would have picked it up. Yeah. Timing is so important. It can really make or break a project, unfortunately, because Mm -hmm. publishing, I mean, it's art, but it's also business. And so writing the right project for the right market, it's really hard to hit all those boxes at the same time. And then also to find an agent that connects with your particular take on that kind of genre or that story. So there are a lot of things that have to line up for it to work, which is why when it finally does, it just feels so great. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. Well, and people talk about those personalized rejections and how that is a step up on that ladder. And that's true. It's still the rejection. But I can tell you after having had a few personalized rejections, that was moving forward. That was an escalation. It was the next step towards an acceptance. And if uh, Jennifer Laughlin hadn't sent me that response that was so kind and she really took her time with it, well, I might have quit. Like she really gave me the feeling that there is someone in publishing that is a pretty big name agent that just told me I'm a good writer. Even though she doesn't want me, she just told me I'm a good writer and that's all I need to throw me that crumb and I'll keep going. I think finding those positive voices is so important, whether it's an agent or an editor at a conference that reads your pages or just a really excellent writing community of, of other writers. Finding your people, it's so important because this business is really hard to break into. It's hard to last in. And just the writing itself can be challenging on a day-to-day basis. So it, it really does matter a lot that you find people that are going to be in your corner. And I mean, my own agent, I had queried him before with a different book and he had passed on it, but it was a really kind rejection. I don't actually think it even had anything personalized. It was just very kind and I had a good community and I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And so I just kept going and it ended up working out with him, which Mm -hmm. was great. But the thing that kept me going was all of my critique partners and beta readers and my family. Like that was where I turned when I needed support on those days that were rough. And there, I mean, there are always going to be rough days in this business. That's the truth. Even after you're published, there are still even after (laughs) yes, (laughs) different problems, but still problems. (laughs) 
Jessica Sensheimer was another one that I was really gunning for. And I thought she was so great. And I had queried her three or four times with three or four different manuscripts. And like on the third or fourth one, she emailed me back and she's like, hi, I just wanted to tell you that I recognize your name. And I appreciate that you keep putting this much faith in me. And it was really cool just to have that personal even though it was a rejection, she said she yeah. knew my name. She's like, I know you keep querying me. I think Jessica actually was the first agent to request a full manuscript for me. And it was the urban fantasy. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> and she, and it's crazy now because she and I are friends now here in New York and she does such wonderful work for the community. She started the manuscript wishlist website and they're now doing, you know, critiques for writers and all these sorts of community building things. She's not my agent. She's just my friend, but she's a person that I feel really grateful to know. There are so many people in the kid lit world in particular, I think, but throughout publishing that, uh, that are just genuinely excited for writers and having their support either on Twitter or going to them to see like, you know, the way they're talking about books, the advice they're giving, the support they're offering, like that stuff is just invaluable. Absolutely. I had the opportunity to meet Jessica at a conference after I was published and she still remembered me. She's like, yes, yeah. I remember reading your submissions and I'm so glad to see that you are published. And I'm like, oh, killing it now. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> yeah, you never get over it. I was like, oh, she's an agent. She likes me. <laughs> <laughs> I still have that feeling and that's my job. <laughs> right. I know. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's amazing. It's, a, it's like a different species has, has uh, shown interest in me. <laughs> Coming up. Lauren on life choices that shape us and how the safe choice isn't always the right one. How a writing routine can be a good thing or a bad thing. And the difference between writing on your own and writing on a contract. Rachel tries to get struck by lightning, hoping it will lead to finding her soulmate like it did for her mother. But when she discovers a devastating secret from her mother's past, Rachel questions everything and quits chasing storms. Now her best friend has ditched her, her mom's angry with her, and the evolving relationship with her friend Jay starts to unravel. The impulse to get struck by lightning resurfaces, and there's a storm coming. Read Soulstruck, the new young adult novel by Natasha Sinell. Your debut title, Your Destination is on the Left is about a girl who lives a nomadic life in her family's RV. When she has the opportunity to accept an internship with an artist in Santa Fe, it has the possibility of greatly changing and impacting her life. So when you're writing YA, do you find that you as the author are looking back at points in your own life where one decision could have changed the course of everything? I do. I've had a lot of those points in the road where I could have done one thing or another. And I think we all have that where we have to make a choice Mm -hmm. that we know is going to have an impact, even if we don't know what that impact is going to be. And I've had a couple different career paths. I went to college as a modern dancer and realized that while I loved it, it wasn't what I wanted to do professionally. And I switched to an English major. That was a hard adjustment because I went from two different arts in one way. And then I realized that I wanted to go to law school. So I applied to law school and I got in, but over the course of my senior year, realized I took a class that was really impactful. It was a modernism, a class on James Joyce. And I realized that grad school was actually the better fit. So I had to make a change there. And I went to grad school and realized I wanted to work with books, but that publishing books for children was actually the way I wanted to engage with books, not teaching. Mm -hmm. So there have been all of these fork in the road moments 
that I do often look back on and use, if not the specifics, then the feeling I had Mm -hmm. for inspiration because Dessa, she does decide to take an internship because she hasn't gotten into college and she feels like this is the end of the road and here I have to do something and here's an option. So she takes that path and it does, it changes everything in her life, but she's also looking for a change. And I think that is also something that I drew from my own life. Sometimes when you have these two different paths, it can feel like, oh God, which do I choose? But Mm. I I try to look at them as like, which opportunity do I want to grab onto? So I try in my better moments to look at those choices as opportunities instead of hard choices, even though they're usually both. Mm -hmm. I guess maybe in your youth, you have the option of making the wrong decision and still recouping. (laughs) I do think that even choices that end up being the wrong ones end up opening up new paths that you might not have gotten to go down otherwise. Like leaving modern dance was terrifying because it was, I think this is true of a lot of different professions, but the arts in particular, you don't just do art, you are an artist. Mm -hmm. It's your identity. And so leaving modern dance was really scary because I had to figure out who I was going to be. But if I hadn't made that hard choice, if I hadn't in some ways failed at being a dancer, because which is how it felt at the time, I didn't want to keep doing it. I didn't feel like I was good enough to do it professionally. If I hadn't made that choice to leave, I wouldn't have gotten to do all of the many things that I did because I went into English and because I went to grad school and because I moved into publishing. So mm-hmm. even when choices feel terrible and like they're being forced upon us. Right. I think good things can come of them, I guess. Yeah. Hopefully. Absolutely. Well, when there's a fork in the road, it's not necessarily true that one is right and one is wrong. Even the ones that look right, you never know. No, you don't. You never know. That's (laughs) the truth. And it does feel final and scary, but I don't know. I guess part of getting older is right finding out that very few things are final. It's funny to talk about choices and doing the scary thing because a lot of the time when I'm writing, when I feel like the book is stalling, I'll be like, oh, it's because I'm not making them make any choices. Mm -hmm. I'm letting them take the easy, the character take the easy path and the hard path or the painful path is so often like a better book. So I try to think of my own life that way. I'm like, make it a good book. (laughs) That's the truth. That's what, when dystopian was so huge, everybody kept saying, why, why is everybody so into dystopian right now? And I'm like, well, because utopian is boring. (laughs) It's interesting that you were a dancer. I find so many authors who were artists in a different medium across the board. I've known so many Michelle Gagnon was actually a dancer as well. I don't know if you're familiar with Michelle. Yeah. She was a dancer. She actually did. She had a great gig working, uh, doing burlesque at a Russian dinner theater. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That sounds way better than like the modern dance that I was doing. (laughs) She had some stories, let me tell you. She was also a fitness model. Whoa. Yeah. Good for her. Yeah, she was. But yeah, I know a lot of writers that have either worked in different arts or still dabble or do both. We always want to be creating in one way or the other. The one art, it's not really a totally different thing, but the one expression that I wish that I had taken advantage of or known about when I was younger is fan fiction. Yeah. Because I was really more focused on dance. And so I didn't actually know I wanted to be a writer until after college and really after grad school, to be honest. So many of my friends got their start in fan fiction and they were writing starting in high school. First of all, they started writing before me, and so they're like way better. Mm -hmm. Um, But they have all these wonderful stories, and they engaged with story in a way that I never did. And so if I could go back and do a different 
art, I guess, I would totally deep dive into fan fiction. Maybe it's not too late. It seems like a good way to play, yes, to improve craft, but without the stakes that come with writing professionally. Absolutely. Because I think that's something that I feel like I've maybe lost a little bit since selling my first book is I've now started thinking about books in terms of audience mm-hmm. and selling the concept in the market. But that is, I think, short stories, fan fiction. It's like a good way to kind of get back to what it is we love about writing. Absolutely. Cause you're not writing for money. This is something you will never make money off of. You're just writing for the sheer yeah, joy right. of it. And you don't have to think, is this yeah. marketable? Who is my audience? Is this going to sell? You're not looking at it as a commodity. You're just looking at it as art. Exactly. So what art form is your main character interested in, in your destination is on the left? So she's a visual artist. And when the book starts, she wants to go to college for just sort of art in general. She likes to paint. She's been toying around with the idea of making a mosaic at some point. She's really in the high school phase of art where you're learning different techniques, you're experimenting, you're figuring out what your medium is going to be. Mm -hmm. So she does lots of different things, but her internship is with a found artist who makes art out of found items. Mm -hmm. It's sort of part sculpture, part painting. It like really depends on the piece that you're making, which was a lot of fun for me to write. I went to a bunch of found art museums or houses that were decorated with found art pieces And I also just did a lot of Googling and then like created a piece of art out of stuff. It was really fun. I get to pretend I'm really good at this, but I never have to actually make it. It's perfect. Right. You don't have to hang your soul on it. I'm currently working on my second book. And so it's my first book I'm writing under contract. And it's a totally different experience. Not always super fun, but it is a new challenge. (laughs) It is. Not a Drop to Drink was my debut. And I have been writing on contract ever since then. Wow. Yeah. And so do you ever do things in between books or is it really like contract to contract? It's usually contract to contract, but I will write short stories. Um, yeah. I write short, I love short stories. Me too. I love them. And there's no money in it. You might be able to place them in an anthology. Maybe. I yeah. do enjoy writing them because it is just like a little jaunt and I can play a little bit and do something different. I don't know if there's any monetization that's ever going to come of that, but I'm okay with it. Just to write, just to write is lovely. I will be very interested to hear how that feels because I can imagine it being freeing, but also with, at least in my case, with freedom can sometimes come procrastination. Absolutely. Cause I don't have to write. <laughs> so this. yeah, exactly. So what was your experience then moving from writing with that freedom of exploration to, oh, I have a deadline and this is a job now? It's been hard. It was hard for different reasons before. Before it's the uncertainty of like, will this book be the one? Mm -hmm. And now it's finding a way to make the book still feel like it's for me. And like, I have the freedom to do what I want with it and to explore it. I'm a plotter, but I also like to take detours along the way. Mm -hmm. And that's how I find my characters. And so writing with a deadline and with the expectation from the publisher, it's just put different constraints on that Mm -hmm. in terms of time and in terms of what I feel like I'm allowed to do. So one of the ways that I dealt with that, it's called a love list or an id list. Have you heard of this? No, I haven't. It's sort of a brainstorming tool and it's a way to make sure that the book stays 
joyous Mm -hmm. as you write it, come up with a list of things that you love and that you want to put into the book. And it can be anything. So I'm currently working on a book that's set in Los Angeles, which is where I'm from. And I really wanted it to be in part a love letter to LA Mm -hmm. because I feel like LA gets a lot of hate. I made a list of all the things that I love there. So palm trees and driving down Sunset Boulevard at 10 o'clock at night when there's no traffic, in and out with your friends and going to the beach and pokey at the Venice Boardwalk. So just like a list of things that you love. Mm -hmm. And then as you write, when you find yourself like, okay, what's going to happen next? You go back to that list Mm -hmm. and you pull from it. For me, it's been a really good way of making this book still feel like it's very much mine, even though I am writing it for someone specific. I love that. I think that's really cool. I think that would help yeah, keep fun. emotionally invested in your work. Exactly. So for your destination is on the left, you focus on a family that lives in an RV and has a community that's built up out of a caravan and that alternative lifestyle. So that's really different. And it's not something I've seen before. What inspired you to use that element as a building block? So I had just moved to New York and my then boyfriend, now husband, and I had driven from California. So we were on the road for a full five or six days. And I've actually done cross-country road trips because I went to school in the Midwest and I would drive to school and back home at the beginning and end of each summer. So I had spent a lot of time sort of crisscrossing the country. And so I had road trips on the brain, but I wanted to think about what it would be like if you never got to the end of the trip. Mm part of what makes road trips fun is that they're going to end. Mm-hmm. You know, you eat snacks and you listen to audiobooks and music and you stop and you go see like the world's biggest potato mm-hmm. and you like, you do the fun stuff yeah. on the road trip. But if you were always on the road, what would that be like? The other thing that was in the back of my mind, my master's degree was in Irish lit and I had studied James Joyce's Ulysses, which is inspired by the Odyssey. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking about sort of homecoming and living on the road and long trips. And so together I created this nomadic family. And that's actually where Dessa's name comes from. It was inspired by Odysseus. So it was kind of a combination of like road trips and wanting to think about journeys and what it would be like for a teen to not to want to go on the road trip, but to be on the road trip all the time. Mm -hmm. And is that lifestyle something that figures into the plot? Like, is Dessa ready for the trip to be over or is she invested in that? So she likes living on the road and she loves the opportunities it affords her. And she also is secretly in love with one of the boys that is uh, traveling alongside her in the caravan. So she likes those aspects of it, but what she really wants is to settle down and to go to college and to study art and to have a little bit more of a normal life. Mm-hmm. She wants to meet new people that she actually gets to see for more than a couple days at a time. Mm-hmm. She wants to settle down. She wants to have her own bedroom and maybe her own bathroom, maybe. <laughs> so she actually wants a different kind of adventure. Mm-hmm. Just me being me. I love road trips. Like I've done a few. I drive constantly for work and appearances and stuff, but I do it better when I'm alone. I think it would be very hard to travel continuously without privacy. To be honest, I think her lifestyle sounds like a nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I I think it would be fun for a few days, but like a long weekend. Yeah. There's (laughs) no way I, at the end of the day, no. No people. I need to be alone when I'm doing yeah. an event. I can be all out 
all the lights are on and I can interact and make jokes and do whatever you want me to do. I will be your dancing puppet. And then at the end, the organizers would be like, well, you know, we'd like to take you out to dinner. And I'm like, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Hard pass. Thank you so much. I'm going home. It's like, I need to go now. I need to be in the car. I need to Right. Absolutely. You need to like recover. An early draft of this book that I shared with my agent, he was like, this is great, but she's a little too unhappy (laughs) with her life. And I was like, that's a good point. So I really had to strike a balance between what it's like to love your family and to love your life, but also to want something totally different, mm-hmm. which I think is a, is something that a lot of people, teens in particular, can relate to, hopefully. You don't have to live on the road to like want to change in circumstance. So, and, and family, it plays a big part in the book. And I come from a very close family and a very big family. And so I really wanted Dessa to be pulled in two different directions because she knows she has a great life and she knows that she loves her family and wants to make them happy and wants to be with them. But she also does want to set off on her own adventure and to make a different kind of life for herself. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the struggles throughout the book. Yeah. That's a great focus for teens because absolutely. I grew up in a small town and one of the things that people always talked about myself included was getting out, get out of here. I still live here. I love it here. I've figured out that this is who I am and it does define me in a lot of ways. I mean, small town, rural farm girl, and this is who I am. But I love coming to New York City. I love cities. I love walking around cities and being in them and enjoying the neighborhoods and doing all of those different things. But I wouldn't want to live in one. Yeah, it's the beauty of modern travel. We can kind of have it all and we contain multitudes. So like when we get tired, because I'm very much a city person, but I regularly go on writing retreats that are in the middle of nowhere because I sometimes just like need to get away and have a quiet space, both like literally and like figuratively in my mind, like I need to slow down. I think just a change in general helps because when I'm in a city, I actually find myself writing and doing well at it, even with all this noise around me that I am certainly not used to cars and trucks and planes and people yelling down in the street. For me, it's like, okay, this is different. Like where I live, if the boyfriend's not home, he easily could be the only person I speak to for an entire day, period. Be the only voice I hear. I enjoy that. Like I like living this way, but when I'm in the city, I will actually just sit out on like a balcony and there'll be people like talking down on the street and like, dude, that's so weird. I'm like listening to them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. We need to do like a house swap right. where we like stay in each other's. <laughs> but yeah, I think change any kind of change. I mean, sometimes my apartment gets too quiet. And so I go to a coffee shop because the noise is helpful or I just want to be around people for that energy. Or sometimes I'm just like, feeling lazy. And I'm like, I got to get out of here. (laughs) Like I got to get out. And sometimes I take a walk just to get things moving. Mm -hmm. And being in a city is a fun way to do that because there's inspiration everywhere. When I do go out into Pennsylvania for writing retreats and I'm in a more rural landscape, it's a different kind of inspiration. It's almost like, you know, sometimes when you're revising, they, people say like change the font. Oh yeah. You'll see it differently. It's kind of like changing your your font. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense yeah. to me. Because people talk a lot about creating a routine and that will help you write. Like if you write in the same place at the same time and do these things every day. And it does help, but it can also mire you. I think switching it up can fire things that maybe wouldn't fire in your normal surroundings. 
Totally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Very cool. I also think there's something to be said for like, do it differently every single sure. day. Like, I'm allergic to like any kind of advice that's do this. Yeah. Like I think start having routines is good insofar as find out what works for you. Writing in the morning is what works mm-hmm. for me anywhere. Like, I don't have to be in my apartment yeah. necessarily. And that's good. Yeah, it is good because it means I can be more flexible as long as it's in the morning. The problem is though, there's some days I don't have time to write in the morning and we get till evening. And I was like, well, I'm not a I don't writer. write at night. Yeah. Yeah. Which is sometimes like, well, you write tonight. <laughs> this is when you're well, writing. Well, you're gonna, so yeah. Staying loose and flexible in process is important. Absolutely. For me anyway. I agree. My debut year, I, uh, they sent me on a tour and I was with Michelle Gagnon. She was one of the people on the tour and we were on a plane and she had a book to do and she plopped out her laptop and started writing. It was like a 45 minute flight and she started writing. I was like, dude, what are you doing? Oh, wow. She's like, I got to write. I got a book to do. And I'm like, you can do that. You can write on a plane. And she's like, yeah, you really have to learn how. And I was just like, oh, that's crazy. I couldn't do that. Now I do. I write in a plane. I write in the airport. Like you just, you have to learn how. What's really amazing about that story to me is that she could get in to it and accomplish things in only 45 she minutes. She did. She got in and she got out and she hit her word camp goal. It was impressive. I am yeah. impressed. I sometimes will do write sprints mm-hmm. on Twitter or on Facebook with people, or I'll just like set a timer for myself, but you do get used to it. When I first start writing any book, it takes me so long to get any words mm-hmm. down. And by the end of drafting, I can do like three times as much in the same amount of time. You just kind of like have to catch your stride. You absolutely do. I agree with that. Lastly, how simultaneously being an agent and a writer can make the written word tedious, experiencing stories outside of books, and where to find Lauren online. You are also an associate agent at Triada Literary Agency. So is it difficult to balance the two different worlds, one critical and editorial and the other creative, while being both an agent and a writer? Yes and no (laughs) is the answer. Two sides of the same coin. I find that my writing makes me a better editor and a better advocate Mm -hmm. because I really understand the writer brain and being editorial and reading other people's books and helping the project the writer wants them to be also makes me a better writer Mm -hmm. because I can kind of see my work from a distance. But at the same time, sometimes it's difficult to turn off my critical brain when I'm writing. I find it much easier to turn off my writer brain than my critical brain. I think the hardest thing actually is carving out writing time because I just sort of default to wanting to like be there for my clients and read and work on contracts. There's so many different parts of it and it's so much fun. Whereas writing sometimes can be, for me, it can feel a little Mm -hmm. repetitive. You sit and you write and you sit and you write. So I think the hardest part for me is getting my butt in the chair and getting the words down. Again, in that way, I'm not that different from any right, other writer. Right. <laughs> so Sadly true. Do you ever find yourself, because you're so immersed in reading and writing and books and every angle, both in your professional life as an agent and then also as a creator yourself, do you ever find yourself just being like, no more, no more printed word. I'm going to watch TV. Oh my God. All the time. In fact, I actually listen to a lot of cool. podcasts, like a lot mm-hmm, of podcasts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We go to the movies a lot. I am obsessed with Netflix, but I think that those things, they're an escape, but they're also helpful because ultimately they're still Mm -hmm. storytelling. And I think that's actually why I like podcasts so much is I listen to 
mm-hmm. true crime, a lot of news podcasts, a lot of nonfiction stuff. And so it's storytelling of a totally different kind than what I work on. I'm still learning. I'm still thinking, and I'm still refilling the creative well, but it doesn't yeah. feel like yeah. a book. Absolutely. I recently started listening to audiobooks, and I know I'm way behind, but um, my mom is a huge advocate of audiobooks, has always been. Like, even when I was a little kid, she would get the audiobooks from the library in those big clamshell cases with like 20 cassette tapes. Yeah. Right. So she really hounded me when I first started uh, traveling a lot for work. She's like, Mindy, start listening to audiobooks, listen to audiobooks. And I would tell her I can read faster than the narrator, which is usually true. But now with digital, you can speed it up. Right. So I'm always looking for ways to get work into time spaces that don't actually accommodate it. So being in the car is one of those things. I'm driving, I can't write, but I can listen to an audiobook. And that makes me a better yeah. writer. Yeah, I find that audiobooks and podcasts make my dialogue better in particular because you're forced to hear how people talk. And there are times where I've listened to audiobooks that are wonderfully written, but when I hear it read out loud, I'm like, that dialogue doesn't actually Mm -hmm. sound natural Mm -hmm. when it's spoken. Like I read right past it on the page, it does not sound as natural spoken. It makes me think more about how people actually talk and the pauses we take in between sentences and words. And it's a really great way to learn, but it's also a great way to just not learn. You can just (laughs) take a break. Be lost in the story. Elizabeth Ween's Codename Verity. It is an astounding audiobook. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an astounding book in general, but the audiobook is absolutely incredible. They have two different girls Mm -hmm. for the two different point of views and it is performed so beautifully I actually listened to it when I had first moved to New York and I was sobbing on the subway yeah. and I like didn't even care. I was like, this is, j- I mean, my God, That's really it's cool. just really incredible. That. Last thing, tell our listeners where they can find you online. So I'm on Twitter at Lauren Spieler and I'm on Instagram at the same. I'm, I'm boring. So my usernames are just Lauren cool. Spieler pretty much everywhere. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist. <laughs>